This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert. You can call me bro. Bro camp. Hey, bro. How you doing? Just fine, Allison. How are you? I'm good. It's the April Mailbag, where you ask questions, and hopefully we have answers. This month, we're joined by Motley Fool contributor Asit Sharma. We're answering your questions about the CARES Act, dividend aristocrats, and the backdoor Roth. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Yes, it's the April Mailbag, and this month we have Asit Sharma joining us. Now, he might be familiar to some of you because he has done some of the other podcasts, but this is his first time joining us on Motley Fool Answers. Asit, thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for asking me, Allison. I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. And you are coming to us from a, a Carolina, I believe, but I don't remember which one. Absolutely. I'm coming from the northernmost of the two Carolinas. Oh, and I've heard we have, of it. We have some great contributors just south of the border, so I'm not going to say anything pejorative about South Carolina, but I will extol the virtues of North Carolina. I'm coming to you from Raleigh, which oh, is wonderful. the capital city. That's great. And Asit, how did you come to be a writer for The Motley Fool? Interestingly enough, there was a short-lived um, blog network, I think is, is the name, The Motley Fool Blog Network. So this was one of Motley Fool's many interesting projects. And I wrote an <laughs> article. putting it so nicely. We so do have many. many we do so have many. so many. Inter- we have a bit of ADD when it comes to projects. But yes. I've, I've found... Yeah, I found that out in my uh, many years of contributing. There's there's no lack for new projects. And that's a great thing. That is a strength of the Fool. I should say, all in all, it's, it's a really awesome strength of the Motley Fool. But that was my hook in. And um, I wrote some articles for that and eventually got asked to write some more. Moved over to what we call Fool.com. So if you read articles on Motley Fool's home website, maybe you'll see some of my writing there. But that was my start. And this was 2011. So I'm, I'm going on uh, many years now with the Motley Fool. Well, bro, you're going to kick it off by taking the first question here. And it comes from Herb. I am still working for my current employer and am under 59 and a half years old. Through the CARES Act, am I able to make a withdrawal from my 403B and then repay the amount into a traditional IRA without having to pay income tax? Would the amount need to be under the max contribution level of $6,000? Well, let's start by reminding folks how the CARES Act affected retirement account distribution. So you can withdraw up to $100,000 combined from your employer-sponsored account or IRAs and avoid the 10% early distribution penalty, but not taxes. But you're only able to do that if you suffered some kind of economic hardship related to the coronavirus. So technically, this option isn't available to everybody. Now, once you take the money out, you still owe the taxes. However... If you get it back in the account within three years, you don't have to pay the taxes. Problem is, if you don't get it back within before December 31st of this year, you will owe the taxes. But then if you get the money in, just amend your tax return and you'll get the taxes back. But based on my reading of the bill, money generally has to go into the same type of account that you took the money from. So I don't think what Herb is suggesting will work. I don't think you can take the money out of your employer account and put it into an IRA. That said, there may be one other possibility, and that's if his plan permits an in-service distribution, which essentially lets you roll money out of your 401k or 403b while you are still working. It's perfectly legal to do that, but the plan has to allow it. So just talk to someone who's knowledgeable in your HR department or one of the customer service reps for the folks who administer the 403b 
to see if that's allowed. If it's allowed, it's generally not allowed until you reach 59 and a half, but you can lower the age of you if you want. In fact, we on the 401k committee here at the Fool just voted today on whether we want to lower the age on ours. Don't know what the result is yet, but so it's perfectly possible. If your plan doesn't allow it, ask the HR department if they'll allow it. Maybe they will. All right, let's move on to the next question. Comes from Colin. I did some number crunching and found that if I invested in only the top 10 holdings of the Fidelity 500 index fund over the past five years, I would have seen a return of around 145%, while the fund as a whole saw a return of only 12.5% over the same five years. I realize these holdings likely change often during this lifetime, so it isn't a perfect measure. Why not make a basket of individual stocks from the top holdings of a desired index fund? You lose out in diversification, but a portfolio of 10 to 20 stocks spread across different industries is generally considered diversified anyways. So Colin, you are correct that holdings of an index fund change over time. And this is sort of the magic of hindsight the formula you put out here looks awesome that if you'd grab these top holdings and held them for five years, you'd have this phenomenal return. But what's going on with these indexes is that most of them that follow the S&P 500 index are capitalization-weighted indexes. So the strong get stronger and they replace the weak in these um, funds that follow indexes. But it's hard to predict what's going to happen in real time. I went back and did some digging. I looked at year-end 2013, which will give you about five years of performance. And yes, in that year-end index of the S&P 500, Apple was present, uh, Google was present, and Microsoft was present in the top 10 holdings. But there was no Facebook. There was no Amazon. And in addition, I found clunkers like Wells Fargo, GE, and Chevron. (laughs) So in the ETFs or mutual funds that follow these indexes, they have to consistently rebalance. So what I said at the outset, that the strong gets stronger. As a company gets popular in the market and its market capitalization rises, it moves into that top 10 um, of a fund's holdings. But that's ever-changing. And it's really hard to predict today. If we simply bought those top 10 holdings today, they might look a lot different uh, in five years. Now, the ETFs and mutual funds will account for that by their rebalancing. But you or I might see the performance of the Amazons and Microsofts and Facebooks whittled down by other companies that are in that top 10. And that's the effect of trying to replicate the performance. It's really hard to do and keep that moving. But let's not throw this idea out with the bathwater. I actually like it very much. And I think you're on to something. And that is that the top 10 holdings of a broad index or maybe even a specialized index that, that you like and are familiar with, that's a great place to look for investment ideas. And sure, can you create your own sort of ETFs now that we have commission-free trading and fractional trading? Um, maybe even look at several funds that you're interested in and pull a few ideas from each. I think it's a wonderful idea. So do that maybe instead of trying to just buy those 10 that look good today and hold those for five years. You could just evaluate each one individually, and that will give you some kind of um, backstop to just blindly uh, using this formula. But the idea overall is a smart one in terms of identifying good stocks to build your own basket. Yeah, when I, I wrote an article in January looking back at the top 10 holdings of the S&P 500 over the years. And just a couple of highlights that when you look at 1980, seven of the top 10 stocks were oil companies, which 
uh, since then probably has not fared so well, certainly over the last several years. And then if you look at 1999, top three were Microsoft, GE, and Cisco. Microsoft peaked in 99 and didn't exceed that peak again until 2016. GE, the peak at 2000 was worth $60 a share. Now it's $6 a share. Cisco peaked in 2000 at $80, now at 43. And then also among the top 10 were like Lucent and America Online. So I love Asset's description of basically strong get stronger, but the weak get weaker. And by owning the index fund, you eventually own more and more of the stocks that are doing better and better. All right. Next question comes from Bill. As I listened to the Rule Breaker Investing Dividend episode, it occurred to me that this could offer a good strategy for getting started with stock investing. If someone had a chunk of money that they wanted to get started with, but weren't sure how much ongoing month-to-month ability they would have to add to their investments, they might start with some strong dividend payers or funds to help with diversification. Then they could use the stream of the dividends as the income stream to help them add to and broaden their investments. So Bill is reacting to the fact that I, along with my colleague, Buck Hartzell, were on the Rule Breaker Investing podcast recently talking about dividends. And I certainly think that dividends are an underappreciated aspect of owning stocks. Um, I like that People like the idea that they're getting some cash and not reliant on the prices. After all, prices go up and down, pretty unpredictable. Whereas if you have a diversified portfolio of dividend payers, you can pretty much count on that income stream. About once a decade, there is a significant disruption. And that disruption is happening now for us, but it's been pretty consistent and growing actually pretty spectacularly since 2009. Um, and I think if you're trying to convince a newer investor to invest in stocks, I think it is pretty compelling to say like these days you could get a diversified portfolio that yields two and a half percent, much more than you're getting from cash more than you're getting from treasuries. So even if the prices go up and down, you're still going to, over the long term, hopefully earn more than you earn in cash. And by the way, this is one of the first, one of only two times since the 50s when stocks yield more than bonds. Since the 50s, bonds have always yielded more. The last time that stocks yielded more was March of 2009, which was right at the beginning of the next great bull market. So it's pretty extraordinary. Um, the trade-off is that I do think it's important to realize that dividends are not a free lunch, right? When you have a company that has a certain value and then it pays out millions of dollars of its cash in a dividend, it's not worth as much. So the price does come down a bit. Um, but that said, if, if for people who like the idea of just buying a few stocks or a dividend-focused ETF, have more cash coming in to buy more stocks, I think it's a, it's a perfectly fine argument. Uh, if you're interested in finding stocks that have a history of paying growing dividends, there's an index known as the S&P Dividend Aristocrats, which leads us to our very next question. All right. Here we go. It comes from Christian. It seems that being crowned a, quote, dividend aristocrat gives stocks a significant boost due to the many funds ETFs that necessarily will buy into significant positions of those stocks. Do you like the idea of investing in a basket of those upcoming anticipated dividend aristocrats, anticipating the bump in share prices when the big funds jump in if, when, they are actually deemed official dividend aristocrats? If so, I'm wondering about the easiest way to invest in upcoming, likely, dividend aristocrats. A low-cost mutual fund or ETF would be great, but I'm not aware of one yet. So, Christian, I'm not aware of one either. I looked around, poked around to see if there is indeed uh, a fund that is anticipated dividends, dividend aristocrats ETF, but I didn't find it. The idea is interesting. 
Um, I will say that the effect of being added to a dividend aristocrat fund isn't quite the same as the effect of being added to, say, the S&P 500 index. You do get a bump when you hit that 25th year, but it's just not as large. And one of the reasons is most of these stocks... And let's parse out that definition of dividend aristocrat. It really refers to companies that are already in the S&P 500 and have paid a dividend out for at least 25 years consecutively and have simultaneously increased that dividend for at least 25 years consecutively. So these are already companies with broad exposure. They're widely followed. They're in most of the uh, indexes that cover try to cover the market, and thereby they're in the ETFs that you can buy. So you do get a bump. But in terms of is this a strategy that might really gain you uh, some more juice long term over simply identifying these companies, it's hard to say. As, as Robert mentioned, um, when a company issues its dividend, it has to have its share price readjusted over the next few trading days because it's distributing out some of that market capitalization to shareholders. And over time, uh, maybe that effect just sort of converges with the normal effect the stock would have in the market from investors recognizing its earnings potential. But um, generally speaking, the idea is, is pretty sound to me because, look, in the process of doing this, you're identifying a company that may have increased its dividend I don't know, 22, 23, 24 years running, and is a company that's an S&P component. You could do this with small caps too, though. It doesn't have to necessarily be an S&P 500 company. So my take is to do the work of finding these types of companies that have consistently increased their dividends. They've shared their retained earnings with shareholders. They're obviously probably growing their operating cash flows. That's a strong potential indicator of market share and market capitalization growth over the long term. You're typically looking at sort of mature, more stable companies, though. These aren't necessarily going to be the hottest growth stocks in the market. But I really like the idea in terms of helping you identify stocks that will serve a um, balanced portfolio over the long term. Now, a caveat, a big caveat, a once-in-a-lifetime caveat. What about COVID-19? We're going to see this year some dividend aristocrats probably fall off the wagon. There's, there's no way out of it. If you have to choose between keeping the lights on and keeping people on payroll and keeping your dividend aristocrat status, I think most companies are going to choose the really critical things they need to survive in advance uh, today. So this is also going to happen to companies that are on their way to dividend aristocrat status. My advice is if you're seeing this happen, is just go to the company's financials, um, read conference call transcripts, try to get a handle on what the plan is. Many companies you'll find, especially the, the bigger ones, the ones that are more equipped to hit the capital markets for more debt, to issue shares, um, they'll probably be okay. And it'll be a one-time blip. Unless we have another pandemic. I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready uh, either. So, <laughs> so looking at these companies one by one on a case-by-case basis will help you because some of them might actually get tripped up and they they might not look so attractive even if they've increased dividends for 20, 22 years, etc. But I do like the principles here in this question. It can lead you to some nice finds for your portfolio. All right. Next question comes from Michael. Is the length you will be in your home the only thing to consider when refinancing a mortgage? If I refinance a 30-year mortgage I've been paying for a number of years, doesn't the amortization curve for the new loan work against me? 
Let's suppose I refinance after paying a mortgage for seven years. I've not really started paying a significant amount of the loan's principal, so in effect, I'm paying rent. Oh, everyone hates that paying rent, don't they, bro? <laughs> they do. For sure. Uh, so Michael's raising a pretty interesting point. So when you start out paying a mortgage, most of the payment does go to interest. It's not exactly like paying rent because some does go to principal and you benefit if the price of the house goes up, but I see what he's saying. So let's put some numbers on this. So according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, the size of a new mortgage these days is around $313,000. Assuming a 30-year mortgage at a rate of 3.4%, that monthly payment is going to be 1388 With your first payment, only $500 is going to principal. So 36% is going to principal. The rest is just to mortgage, to interest. After seven years, that only moves up to 46%. So even after being in the house for seven years, most of it's still going to interest. You don't get to that point where the, print, the payment is half principal, half interest to almost 10 years. And that depends an awful lot on the interest rate. So if it were a 4% 30-year mortgage, the rate, the, the point at which you get half principal, half interest is almost 13 years. And if it's a 5% mortgage, you don't reach that half principal, half interest till more than 16 years. Um, so Michael's making a good point. When you refinance, you reset that payment schedule going to back to where a larger percentage of your payment is just going to interest. Considering all the numbers involved, including how much you have to pay to refinance, because there are upfront costs, the, ba- the bottom line is to determine whether you should refinance, you need a good calculator. There's one on fool.com. There's a good one on Bankrate. Actually, several good ones on a site run by the mortgage professor, a guy named Jack Gutentag. It's mtgprofessor.com, um, which is I think is a fascinating site because it's been run to the sky forever. He's 96 years old, and he's still actively blogging. He's a professor at Wharton. So you got to factor in all these things, upfront costs, um, whether you're going to make additional payments, and you figure out how you have to make some sort of an estimate how long you're going to be in the house, and then figure out, was it worth it? Not only in terms of the savings that you realized, but how much of a loan you still have to pay off at the end of it. Um, and you had, many of the calculators used will default to showing you like how much you saved after 30 years but nobody stays in the same house for 30 years. So you have to assume like, what if I move in seven years? What if I move in 10 years? What if I move in five? And then make the decision whether refinancing makes sense. All right, next question comes from Sandy. On a recent podcast, Bro mentioned that bond funds might not hold up as well as expected if they contain bonds that were just barely investment grade and are now no longer as high quality. Consequently, Any money we want to keep absolutely safe in the next one to three years would be better off in cash. I'm wondering about the rule your retirement model portfolios for those in retirement. Are you considering decreasing the recommended amount allotted to bond funds and recommending cash instead? Are you considering recommending different bond funds? Uh, On the spot. What are you going to do? That's (laughs) right. Well, let's start with bond funds. So. Bond funds change value every day, depending on movements in interest rates and the credit quality of the bonds in the fund. Over the past several years, one of the fastest growing segments of the bond universe was corporate debt rated triple B. That's just a notch above junk territory. Now, some of those bonds are being downgraded to junk stats. They're being called actually so-called fallen angels. And when that happens, they drop in value. And some recent examples is the debt from Ford, Macy's, The Gap. They've all been downgraded to junk. Um, So if you're investing in a bond fund for safety, it does make sense to take a look at what's in your bond fund to make sure that there's not too much 
of this debt that's either in junk territory or could be junk ter- territory. You would do that by just entering the ticker, morningstar.com, click on the portfolio tab, and you can see how the fund breaks up by different ratings. Um, as for the RYR model portfolios, they're all index ETFs. So the main bond holding is the um, Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF. But despite its name, it doesn't actually own the whole, whole total bond market. There's no junk bonds, uh, very few municipals, a little bit, uh, no treasury inflation protected securities, otherwise known as TIPS. If you look at the current holding, 18% of it is triple B rated. So that is a, a significant portion in that in that point right above junk. But because so much of the rest of the fund is in triple A rated, that means treasuries or other bonds backed by Uncle Sam, it's pretty safe. So I'm pretty comfortable having it in the RYR model portfolios. As in my own portfolio, because I own, uh, I follow the RYR model portfolios with some of my own money. Um, Another risk with bond funds is at some point, if and when rates do go up, the values of bond funds will go down. No one expects that to happen anytime soon, but it is a risk, which is why I say any money you need in the next few years should be invested in cash. And if you were actually to visit the RYR model portfolios page on the website, you would see a little asterisk there next to bonds saying that maybe depending on your situation, bonds may not be the best choice for your non-stock money. I just wanted to make one um, quick comment about that. The I can't stress this enough, what, what Bro was illustrating. The difference between investment grade, which is like a seal of approval in the credit markets, and junk status, as he points out, is just one notch. <laughs> so it really helps to do just that, to be familiar with the holdings uh, in, in a fund, to look at those and understand how much is sort of higher investment grade and how much is borderline, because it just, you know, it, it's always mystified me. One day your investment grade. And there's no middle ground. You go from investment grade to junk by that one notch. Next question comes from Alex. I am 29 and currently invest most of my retirement savings in a Vanguard total market ETF. Would you recommend beginning to invest a majority, 50 to 75% of my savings in a tech sector ETF, such as Vanguard's information technology ETF, VGT? The thought being for someone in their 20s who has an investing horizon of 30 to 40 years, that the technology sector in particular is likely to beat the market as a whole between now and, say, 2050. This seems like a good strategy given how critical technology appears to be for our future. But investing this heavily in a sector ETF cuts against conventional advice. So I wanted to get your thoughts. So, Alex, my first thought is congratulations. You are a wise 29-year-old. I wish I had your brain when I was 29 because most of us at that age aren't really thinking in terms of 30 and 40 years ahead and how they're investing retirement savings. So, bully for you. Um, Information technology is a very likely candidate to have a long run of success uh, as a thematic investment. I want to return to something we were talking about earlier in the show, Uh, and make it a little more specific. I believe that index funds are actually rigged, but in the investor's favor, in a legal way. And I believe that ETFs, which are indexed to a broad-based tech index, are rigged in the younger investor's favor. And what I mean by that is, Bro was talking earlier about how indexes are representative of the economy. Certain sectors over time become more representative than others. That's why Eastman Kodak no longer represents the vanguard of our technology. It's why Whirlpool and Maytag may still be household names, but they're not leading the S&P 500. 
And your idea is pretty correct in that if you had to choose a sector, maybe healthcare would compete with that. That's going to have this 30 to 40 year time horizon. It's a good choice to choose information technology as some companies that we are familiar with today lose their effect in the economy indexes will simply remove them and they will add new members which represent new wealth creation new value creation in the markets i want to say something about your comment on conventional advice conventional advice says hey just follow the broader market in one fund why not just buy an index fund which tracks the etf um why not buy just one ETF that tracks, say, the S&P 500 index, the broader market? Well, if you do that, you are actually exposed to something called market risk, which is what it sounds like. It's the risk that the whole market could go down. I don't know. Maybe there's a geopolitical event or a pandemic, uh, something nah, that may- that'll oh, never stop. happen. When is that going to happen? Just put your funds in that one ETF and, and forget about it. We did not have mutual funds or ETFs in the 1960s. I think we may have had a few mutual funds in the late 60s. There was a bear market from 1968, I think which lasted, um, gee, 14 years, if memory serves correctly. Not that I lived through all of that, but from studying the markets on an inflation-adjusted return in those 14 years, if you had just invested in the market, if we had ETFs at that time, you would have lost about 50% of your money. And it took some 23 years for the market to come back to the level it hit in 1968. So I'm not so sure that conventional advice is all that great. And you can prevent some of the hurt from market risk by doing just what you're suggesting. As for the percentages, that's up to you. But it doesn't hurt to go into a little bit of a sector-based investing theme. In my estimation, have both, have some in, in the total market and have some in a really good idea like this. I do think it's important that if you're going to go for a sector and choose an ETF, to look at what's in that ETF to make sure it represents what you're looking for. So, uh, Alex suggested the Vanguard Information Technology ETF, VGT. So I want you all to think, what would be the top among the top holdings for that ETF? Think of which companies, la da 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 Okay, here are the top 10. Microsoft, Apple, Visa, Intel, MasterCard, Cisco, Adobe, NVIDIA, Salesforce, and Oracle. Huh. So my first, my first guess is you're probably surprised that Visa and Mastercard are there. Yeah. Yes. And secondly, you're probably survive. You're probably surprised that you don't see any uh, Amazon, no Facebook, no Google, because they fall under other sectors. So just you, just, when you look for doing this type of investing, make sure you're getting an ETF that really is investing in the type of companies you're interested in. All right, next question comes from Bluebacks. I'm 55 years old and late to investing and saving for my retirement. I had around 70000 in a taxable account down to 48000 Thank you, Corona. I never started a retirement account as I've been self-employed for the past 25 years. I know, bro, big mistake, but what can I say? My question is, with only 6000 a year allowed to be deposited into an IRA, what other options are there to save for retirement to maximize tax benefits? If I put the maximum in an IRA every year and I continue to work for another 20 years, and I assume a very generous 10% annual return, that will be just under $500,000, probably not enough to retire on. So would someone in my position be forced to also put money away in a taxable account? Thank you in advance and keep making me smile every week. Get some. (laughs) 
<laughs> just so people know, whenever people send, send in their questions, they often say very nice things about us. And I usually take them out because I feel like it's too self-promotional. But when he included Get Some, get I had some. to keep that in. <laughs> uh, and for those who don't know, that comes from uh, when we learned from a listener that it's very funny to listen to the show on half speed. And then we listen to the show on half speed on the show. And then we listen. It got, it's, it's now it's like inception right now because we then listen to ourselves listening to the show, listening at half speed. Anyway, and then at the end of it, I punctuate it by saying, get some, uh, but at half speed. And so I sound very, very intoxicated and it's hilarious. <laughs> so thank you, Blue Max, for making me laugh. Yes. Uh, so to get back to Blue Max's question. So it's never too late to start. I know people say that, but I really do believe it's certainly in your mid 50s. So good for you for getting on top of this. Let's start with that $6,000, which is the annual contribution limit for IRAs. The good news is that for workers 50 and older, you can contribute another 1000 on top of that. But I have even more good news for you. As a self-employed person, you can open up your own 401k called a solo 401k or a one participant 401k. And the contribution limits are much higher than an IRA, 19500 for the younger folks, 26000 for 50 and older. But because you are also the employer, you could put more money on top of that. It's sort of like you're in charge of the match. So you could put in a profit sharing contribution on top of that. So if you have a relationship with an accountant or a financial services firm, ask them about that and they'll provide all the details. The other good thing that you're doing is that you're planning to work for another 20 years to age 75. The longer you work, the less you need to have saved for retirement because number one, you'll receive a bigger social security because you're delaying taking that benefit. But also, you, frankly, you're retiring later in life, so your retirement's going to be shorter, so you don't have to fund as many years. Presently, there's no benefit to delaying beyond 70, so you could start taking it at 70 if you're going to keep working, but then rather than spending that money, just keep in investing it. So you can actually use social security to boost your retirement savings for that last five years. One caveat to this is that something like a quarter of people retire sooner than they expect due to health reasons. So don't count on being able to work to 75, but hopefully you'll be able to do that. But I think assuming that you start maxing out a solo 401k now and you really are able to work for another 20 years, I think you're going to be in decent shape. Um, but to find out for sure, you might want to hire a fee-only financial planner to do a retirement analysis for you, which I think just about everyone in their 50s should do and certainly everyone should do right before they retire. Next question comes from David. I'm a stock advisor member, and I started buying stocks when the market started to fall at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. I've been buying shares of stock at least once a week when I get paid, but I'm a little frightened off from buying stocks like Amazon or Alphabet because the share price is so enormous, at least to me. I'm a small investor, and the price of one share of Amazon is more money than I have in the six stocks I own. Is it okay to buy into a company that trades for around $2,200 if I can only afford a few hundred dollars worth of the stock? Or should I stay with the cheaper priced stocks? Well, thankfully, David, uh, now you don't have to choose. And I like this question. There's another project that I work on in the full where we take questions. And I'm seeing so many questions about this topic. And I think some of the confusion stems from what happened last year. So let's just rewind to fall of last year when one of the largest brokerages in the United States, Charles Schwab, uh, announced that it was doing away with commissions. And that produced a sort of a tidal wave through the industry. Suddenly, everybody and his brother who ran a brokerage house had to also drop commissions. And there was no distinction between discount brokerages and traditional brokerages. I mean, those differences have been um, narrowing anyway over the years. 
So this was a really great thing for investors. It, it means that we will get more yield out of our investments because they will not be so trimmed down by commissions. Um, but it also precipitated some of this raise to offer fractional shares. Schwab announced shortly after it was dropping its commissions that it would uh, begin to provide investors with fractional trading, meaning thereby you could invest by dollar amount. So let's say you only had 100 bucks, but you wanted to buy Amazon symbol AMZN. Schwab was promising to its customers that you'll be able to do just that. Now, another big brokerage, uh, TD Ameritrade, which is uh, a widely um, sort of ubiquitous brokerage as well, they are also going to offer the same. But there's a hitch in that these two companies are right now under a merger agreement. So they're going to merge at some point this year. And I don't think either one of them, I I checked a a couple of weeks ago, I don't think either one of them has yet offered fractional share trading. I think it's now going to happen after their mergers, my best guess. However, there are a number of places you can go to um, invest fractionally. Uh, Just to mention a few, fidelity.com does offer this service. The only hitch there is that once you open an account with Fidelity, if you're trying to trade through their web interface, you can't buy fractional shares. You have to download the app on your phone and select dollars and plug in the amount for the symbol you want, but it will let you buy those shares of Amazon, even if you got a buck that you wanted to, you want to put into Amazon.com or, or Netflix or um, Booking Holdings, which is another ticker with a big price, even Berkshire Hathaway. You can buy those now with just a few bucks. Just to mention a couple of others, which aren't traditional brokerage houses, many listeners will be familiar with Robinhood, the app that is very popular with millennial and younger investors. Uh, It's well known for already offering fractional trading. A company called M1 Finance does the same. And something that I really love is called Stockpile. And that's an investment app that's geared towards younger investors. Actually, it's geared towards the kid in all of us. It's got a really nice interface. It's, it's very spiffy, um, makes it fun to invest. And you can have your kids involved in fractional trading uh, by using this service. You'll have to open a custodial account uh, for them for, in order for them to do this. But I like that very much. So to some, I think fractional share trading with this whole movement to do away with commissions is such a powerful tool for the retail investor. And it allows you to equal weight your ideas and you're not held prisoner by share price any longer. Our next question comes from Aaron. I'm 30 years old. My wife is 29. We make 223000 a year combined and max out both our Roth 401ks and my Roth IRA. After marrying my beautiful wife, I found out our income was above the threshold allowing us to make direct Roth IRA contributions. I then learned about the backdoor Roth conversion. My understanding of the backdoor Roth is that if I put $6,000 in a traditional IRA, which has already been taxed by my employer via payroll and income taxes, I then convert that money into a Roth about a week after it has been deposited into my traditional IRA. However, I am receiving conflicting guidance from my tax professional versus a financial planner. My tax professional told me since the money was already taxed by my employer, when I make the conversion, I only have to report the gains on the conversions as taxable, not the base $6,000 conversion. However, a financial planner told me this was incorrect. He explained that I needed to report the $6,000 conversion as income. Basically, he was telling me I should be getting double taxed on this money and that I needed to stop these conversions now and submit amendments to my taxes. Can you clarify? Bro, whose side are you going to come down on here? 
Well, I'll start Judge with a bro. Now presiding. <laughs> I'll start with a general rule of thumb. If there's a debate about taxes between an accountant and a financial planner, go with the accountant. So I'm a certified financial planner. I took a class in taxes. I had to pass a test, but I know nothing compared to the average accountant. Plus, on a practical level, accountants who've been in the business for a while have filed literally hundreds of tax returns. Whereas most financial planners don't do their clients' tax returns, and many don't even do their own returns. So when it comes to taxes, go with the accountant. That said, not every accountant is perfect, and I see that you're getting conflicting advice from professionals, so I understand why you'd want to know what the answer is. So when you make a backdoor Roth, you first make a contribution to a non-deductible traditional IRA, and you report it on your taxes using Form 8606, which is specifically for non-deductible IRAs. So as Aaron points out, it's made with after-tax money. And when you take out the non-deductible IRA contributions, whether it's through a conversion or just making a regular withdrawal, you don't pay taxes on that. You only owe taxes on the gains earned by those contributions. Now, after you do the conversion, you will get a tax document. It's called a 1099-R from your broker at the end of the year, which you use to report the conversion on your tax return. So the financial planner is right that you have to report it but you'll only owe taxes to the extent that the amount listed on the 1099-R exceeds the amount on the Form 8606. If you don't have any other traditional IRAs, a backdoor Roth is really easy. Just talk to your accountant or even call your broker because they've been doing this a lot. They'll walk you through it. Um, But as long as you don't have any other traditional IRAs, you shouldn't owe much of any taxes. Oh, once you start, once you brought up a second form, I think I, I think I just kind of fell asleep for a little bit. Just not fell asleep, but it's just once you start talking oh, no, about I a understand. number of forms conflicting with each other, then I'm just like shut down. I just don't even. Nope, done. <laughs> okay, well, someone will walk, hold my hand. Is basically what you're saying. If I want to do it, yes, great. All right, next question comes from George. Can you talk about preferred stocks and your opinion on them when, with regards to adding them to a purely income portfolio? Sure. I'm an opinionated guy, so I have an opinion on this question. Um, but I, I'm not going to get into a deep review of preferred stocks or, or we'd be here for another hour. But I will just say just a couple of features about preferred stocks versus common. They tend to have higher dividend yields. Um, they don't typically have voting rights, but they do have preferences in dividends. So a company, if it's got preferred stock out there, it's got to make sure it can pay that first. Um, they tend to have preference in liquidations. If a company goes bankrupt, the claims of the preferred stockholders are higher up in the food chain versus the claims of uh, common stockholders. They can often be convertible to common stock, and they can be callable. A company can call them back and um, more or less retire those. So it's just a general refresher on what a preferred stock is. Um, now, as, as for this idea, I'm assuming uh, that we've, we're looking at uh, a mix of dividend stocks, maybe some dividend ETFs, um, maybe some bonds or bonds ETF when George refers to an um, portf- income portfolio. So what preferred stocks can do in in, um, many cases, it's one of the few ways where you can 
increase the yield on a portfolio without really um, messing with the beta of your portfolio. And by beta, I simply mean uh, the volatility of your portfolio compared to uh, that big broad measure of the S&P 500 index, which is said to have a beta of 1.0. So if the stocks you own are more volatile as a group uh, than the S&P 500, your beta coefficient is over 1.0. If it's below 1.0, then your basket of stocks is less volatile. For the income investor, it's sort of important because you're not really as concerned with growth as much as having a stable basket doesn't change a lot and keeps returning those cash flows to you. Preferred stocks in general tend to be less volatile than common stocks for some of the reasons I listed at the beginning of this answer. They're a different animal, but we should put out the caveat that with the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw a lot of preferred stocks acting almost as volatile as common stocks. And the reason simply is that uh, preferred, preferred stock shareholders got a little worried about companies' ability to pay their coupons. And actually, the, the dividend of a preferred stock is often referred to like a bond as, as a coupon. But that's simply all it is. It's just, it's just the dividend payment. People got worried that maybe the companies won't be able to honor their obligations. So we saw a lot of volatility. That should be a rare event. I don't know how often we'll see that. I read somewhere that stocks hadn't been this volatile since maybe 2008 preferred stocks. So it's a good idea to add some in, uh, I believe, in general. Uh, you won't be immune from volatility. It seems like we have these once-in-a-lifetime events more and more. We're only 12 years removed from the, the Great Recession. But on the whole, it's a pretty solid idea because, as I said, you can lower the volatility of your overall portfolio. You can collect uh, a slightly higher dividend yield than you might otherwise. So I say go for it. Just like everything else, be balanced in your approach. Yeah, when I hear people ask about preferred stocks, they're often asking as a replacement for bonds because preferred stocks do yield much more than bonds. Um, and I would just emphasize what Asit just said, and is that with preferreds, you do get some volatility. So one of the largest preferred ETFs is the iShares Preferred Income ETF, ticker is PFF. At one point this year, it was down 33%. Since then, it has rebounded to being down just 9%. But in 2008, it was down more than 20%. So I, I think having some preferreds in your portfolio is fine, but just know that they are they can be just as volatile as stocks. So they're not really a, a necessarily an, an apples-to-apples replacement for bonds. Next question comes from John. I know the gist of the wash sale rule, that you can't sell a stock within 30 days before or after you buy stock and harvest the loss for tax purposes. However, is that based on the quantity of stocks bought? For example, if I sold 10 stocks and 20 days later, my dividend reinvestment bought 0.5 stocks, are all of my 10 stocks washed or just 0.5? And can I take a loss on the other 9.5? I like how John points out the, the before and after aspect, because most of the time when the wash sale rule is discussed, it goes something like this. Someone will say, like, if I sell a stock for a loss, I can't buy it back for 30 days if I want to use the loss on my tax return. But you also can't buy it 30 days before the sale. So that is important to know. In John's case, it sounds like he sold just some of the shares of a stock he owns, and then he received, received dividends from the shares he still owned. And since he had signed up for dividend reinvestment, he automatically bought another half a share. So he unintentionally bought within 30 days. To answer his question, he can still use the loss on the 9.5 shares on his tax return, but not for that half a share that he bought within those 30 days. But he's not completely out of luck. 
the disallowed loss will be added to the cost basis of that half a share, which means he'll have a lower capital gain when he eventually does sell, assuming, of course, he makes a profit. All right. And our last question comes from Dan. Does any of the recent legislation extend the deadline for contributing to an IRA or 401k to the new filing deadline? Or did money still have to be deposited by April 15? So here are all the new retirement and tax-related deadlines in light of all the ways the government is trying to help Americans cope with the corona crisis. So let's start with 401ks and most other employer-sponsored plans. For most people, no changes. You have to make contributions in the same calendar year. So the deadline was and is December 31st. However, if you check out the FAQ on the IRS website about this point, they will highlight that there are some exceptions depending on when a company files its taxes. So check with your plan provider. Uh, As for IRAs, the deadline to file and pay federal taxes has been moved to July 15th. And that is also now the deadline to contribute to an IRA for 2019. That same applies for health savings accounts. The deadline for paying estimated federal taxes for the first and second quarters of 2020 has also been moved to July 15th. Finally, most states have also moved their deadlines to July 15th, but not all, including our home state of Virginia. So make sure to check your state's deadlines for filing returns, paying the actual money, and paying quarterly estimates. All right. That's it, you guys. Wow, 13 questions. It's time then to head to the other mailbag where we uh, share the things that you shared with us. So I want to say thank you to Randy who sent in some virtual postcards. He also um, suggested a way for me to introduce Robert Brokamp. So I'll do that his uh, suggestion at the next show. Ooh, what's it going to be? Randy also offered his advice, uh, including budgeting and talking to his spouse for any item uh, purchase of over 100. And also suggested going to your state's unclaimed property site to see if you have any money left outstanding for you. So I did a search in Virginia and apparently Dominion Power and Motorola owe me some money. So it's like online couch cushions. It's Motorola. Wow. Yeah, I know. I wonder what that's about. Anyway. Hope you're getting interest on that money. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Motorola. I also want to say thanks to Rich, who sent a lovely virtual postcard from Paris and also suggested a holiday tradition. Instead of an elf on the shelf, why not have a Jester the Investor who visits families during the month of April to help with financial investing fitness? Bro, you have to love that idea. I do. Peter, uh, I want to thank Peter, who took Rick Engdahl's advice and sent some lovely virtual postcards of photos he took in Edmund Babbler State Park in St. Louis. Uh, mm-hmm practicing some social distancing. Brent also took Rick's advice. I think maybe we thanked Brent already, but we'll do it again. He took some very artsy photos of his cat looking thoughtful out of a rainy window titled Quarantine Blues. Vicky sent in her submission of her husband cutting firewood in Wisconsin. Rick, so many people like took your, took, took your advice about taking pictures. Amazing what boredom will do. Isn't it? Uh, and Dell wrote in to let us know that Andy Cross looks a lot like Tony Stark. And it's funny that you never see the two in the same place at the same time. Hmm. Bro, did you have a, a letter you wanted to share? Well, I'd like to thank Bill for sending in his family holiday tradition. They all get together to watch Emmett Otter Jug Band Christmas. A very underappreciated special, a Muppet special, features some kazoo music. Thank you, Bill. Is this, a, is this one that you knew about? Bro? Oh, I did know about it, but it's not very well known. I don't even know if they make it on the, like, a you know, a lot of those specials will come through every year, but I haven't seen it on TV, but I might have the DVD. <laughs> now, if you can just find a DVD player to play it. 
All right. Well, let's head to our closing parting advice of uh, something that will hopefully give joy to our listeners during this time of pandemicness. Asit, do you want to go first? Yes. So um, I have three suggestions. Um, oh, okay. Things to do in the pandemic. The first is teabag ball. This is a game I invented when I was really bored. Take a teabag, clip off the string, and take the cup you'd normally drink the tea out of, put it on a wooden table about five or six feet from you, and pretend you're making the game-winning free throw. It'll keep you occupied for hours. Um, <laughs> second, I am get, really getting into watching foreign comedies, but focus on one particular country. I drag my family to see in the house. So I drag them from the four corners of the house to see a <laughs> Turkish film called Ava Ava, which is sort of um, not literal translation, but it means my goodness. Um, and I'm focusing on Turkey. Turkish comedies are really wonderful. This is spelled E-Y-Y-V-A-H and then E-Y-V-A-H. I don't know why the second Ava is, is spelled differently, but focus on one country. You'll take yourself to another environment and watch comedies just from that country. And last one, we have, uh, as I know so many people are doing Zooming with friends and family. So some friends uh, of ours, we're going to put on a sort of weekly call with our family and theirs. And I'm asking everyone to do a one-liner at the beginning of the call. I lifted this one from my Twitter feed. I think this was actually from Selena. Um, if you follow Selena Maranjan on Twitter, long time fool. She has a lot of hilarious stuff. All, I don't know where she finds the time, but it's an endless stream of, of witticisms and jokes. So here's my one-liner from our first call. You mean a shrimp fried this rice? <laughs> Zing. <laughs> those are the jokes. Uh, those are my three things. <laughs> oh, that's great. Who wants to go next? Uh, so this probably don't won't bring you joy, uh, but if you like... Me choose to mentally escape the difficulties of these troubled times by learning about things that are even worse. Then I recommend a newish podcast series called Monster DC Sniper. So it's a very detailed 15 episode series about that crazy time when we here in the DC area feared gas stations and white vans, even though it turned out that they didn't drive a white van. The series features all kinds of interviews with many of the original investigators and journalists and witnesses involved with the case. If you have just a moderate interest in the case, the series might run a bit too long, but I found it rather interesting and, and to be honest, chilling, uh, having lived through that. Uh, I don't know, Allison, were you living in the D.C. area during that time? I was, yeah. I'd, I'd lived here before 9-11, the day before 9-11, and then... Yeah, so then I was here for the DC sniper, which was crazy. Which is so crazy. It was a crazy time to be living in DC. You'd be, they were telling you to always walk in a serpent, never walk in a straight line down the sidewalk. Always watch walk serpentine. Yeah. So we were doing that, and um, gas stations were hanging time. up tarps to prevent yeah. people from being seen while they're putting in their gas. Everyone who owned a, a white van was stopped at least three times by cops yeah. at some point in that that five to six week period. It was insane. So so my suggestion is a follow-up on a previous... So I, I assume that our listeners are going to be doing all of these things that we suggest, right? So at this point, they're out taking pictures. They're, they have a new puppy. And uh, and obviously, from the very first time we did this, they're, they're playing the ukulele. And they've been playing it for several weeks yes. now, right? Yeah, they have. And they probably have a handful of songs down. So I'm going to suggest you take your ukulele to the next level and you write a song. If you're not a songwriter, Ooh. become a songwriter. And here's the tip. Here's how you do it. First, you take a song that you know and like, a simple song, you know, something, I don't know, Jimmy Buffett or something like that, something that has a nice, simple verse-chorus pattern, something that's familiar. 
you take the words and you throw them away and you write new words to the same tune, right? You have the rhythm down, you have the tune down, you already know how to play it on the ukulele, write new words to the same tune about whatever it is you want to say. And when you're done, then you take those words and you put a whole new tune to it that you make up. Look at See, you. See, because you already have the words at that point, you know how it goes. That's how you get into the art of songwriting. It's like reverse Weird Al. It is kind of like doing a parody. The first time it feels like you're doing a parody. And maybe you do a parody. That's cool, too. Um, but if you take it to the next step and you just, okay, now I got the words. They fit this pattern. It's familiar. Now I can write a new tune to that song. And, uh, you know, you can even use the same chords on your ukulele. Wow, Rick. So that's my suggestion. It's a creativity tip. Hey, Rick, wow. if, any, if anyone wanted to hear your songs that you have written, are you on some sort of public sort of thing? Like a Spotify or something like that? Oh, yeah. That? Why, yes, bro, I do. I, in fact, have songs on Spotify. You just go to Spotify, I assume, and search for my band name, which is Sense of Wonder. And it's my wife and I as a duo. And it's a uh, it's a brand new album. It came out just in 2007. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's still good. It's still good. Uh, yeah. I have I'm the actual CD. I'll tell you what. I did my own solo CD prior to that. Um in 1997 so every 10 years or so <laughs> the marketing cycle and, is so long with with yeah. great albums yeah 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 but my solo album um is not on spotify and never will be anywhere in public if i can avoid getting it there so uh, i'm not proud of that one but the wow, one I did with, so, with that, so go so, write a song says rick engel <laughs> you'll be so happy you did i'm super write proud a song, but but write more songs before you record them yeah <laughs> And marry somebody more talented than yourself, oh, and then yeah. your album will be better. Wisdom. Voice. Yeah, <laughs> I love her voice. All right. Uh, okay, so it's to me. Uh, this is not a great. It, I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. All right. So, do you happen to be one of the lucky lucky few who has some money burning a hole in your pocket? And maybe there's someone in your life who's having a bad day, and you want to make them feel better. Well, head to Cameo where you can find five major celebrities and 5,000 minor celebrities who are all willing to record a personal message in, in video form and send it to someone you love. So Cameo is crazy. Basically, uh, for like 40 bucks, I found Kevin McDonald from Kids in the Hall, and he recorded a, I don't know, it felt like two, three minute, but it was probably like a one or two minute message to my best friends from high school who are big fans of kids in the hall. And so, and then the text response I got from my best friend was just a lot of the letters O and then some swear words, but like happy swear words. So anyway, again, for 40 bucks, uh, it was a price I was willing to pay to bring some joy to a couple of my high school friends' lives. And you can find other celebrities on there especially if they've been on a reality show in the last 10 years or sports ball players. And I don't know, cameo. It's funny. It's weird. You can get Steve Gutenberg. I don't know. Don't send me cameos. <laughs> or so, or someone from Cheer, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. But our boss um, of the communications department, she sent us a ch uh, message from Jerry from Cheer um, saying congratulations on completing a project. And so that was really it was actually really amazing to see Jerry from Cheer giving us a mat talk. It was it was fantastic. So Jerry is, Jerry is quite awesome. He is quite awesome. So anyway, cameo, check it out or don't. Whatever. I don't care. <laughs> We're all just trying to survive. <laughs> Anyway, all right. Uh, well, that's the show. Austin, I want to thank you so much for joining us from the Northerner Carolina. Uh, the show is edited singer-songwriterly by Rick Engdahl. 
for Robert Brokamp. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.